Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The gospel in a nutshell. We continue in our sermon series from what we call Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Now we come to the resurrection passage, chapter 15. Friends and neighbors had completely regarded them as absolutely ordinary. Nothing seemed unusual about these two bachelor brothers, sons of a united brethren bishop. They were quiet, well-dressed, hard-working, and in fact, they were polite to a fault. Two bicycle makers by trade from Dayton, Ohio. It was December the 17th, 1903. They were trying to make history. They were trying to finish their experiments and get home before Christmas. The salty, cold winds were coming off the ocean. Oh, you could both taste the salt and feel the cold in your bones. But don't misunderstand, they were happy about the wind. The wind and the soft sandbanks are the reason that this very site had been selected. Only after studiously poring over the average daily wind velocities from 120 weather bureau stations had they decided that this was a place ranked with the sixth highest average wind velocity in the United States. They had never even heard of the place before, but if it had wind, and if it had sand, that was all they needed to know. The location couldn't even be reached by land, for no bridges crossed the inlets and the sounds. The problem was they had to find someone who both knew where this little place was and owned the boat to get them there. A little sleepy fishing village that only was inhabited by a few families. It took three days to find someone who knew where this place was and both owned a boat, but his name was Israel Perry. That was the someone. And Perry's boat, it leaked like a rusty old bucket. So they constantly bailed all the way over to the little place they had selected, the sandy shore of their destination. The wind was there, just like the weather reports had predicted, but so were the black flies. One of the brothers recorded in his diary, they chewed us clear through to our socks and underwear. Bad black flies. If the flies were plentiful, so it was the beauty. The sunsets were the most stunning they had ever experienced. The cloud lit up a crimson prison behind them, sort of blue clouds. Well, they were etched in gold every time. Though they were friendly, all right, the locals were perplexed by these two brothers, Yankees to boot, who had come to their little village at the worst time of year at the onset of the winter storm season. And that contraption the brothers were building was more than a mystery. I mean, the locals were a practical hard-headed lot who believed in a good God and a hot hell and more than anything else the same good God intended for man to keep his feet solid on the ground. It was perfectly silly, was it not? 
to think that these brothers are spending all this try, time trying to get man, humankind to fly? Well, birds fly. God gave them wings. Men are supposed to walk. God gave us feet. Even the greatest minds alive at the time could not dream it possible. Why would anyone pay attention to a couple of bike peddlers? University of California professor Joseph Lacant wrote in 1888 that flying would never be possible. Number one, there's a low limit of weight, about 50 pounds, beyond which it is impossible for an animal to fly. Animals reach 50 pounds, they don't fly. And number two, any machine that might be constructed for flying, including both the fuel and the engineer, well, it would certainly weigh about 300 pounds. And thus, is it not demonstrated that a true flying machine, self-raising, self-sustaining, self-propelling, is absolutely physically impossible? Even Thomas Edison wrote, is apparent to me that the possibles of the aeroplane have been exhausted and we're going to have to turn elsewhere. Besides, Samuel Pierpoint Langley had $70,000. He had tried just two weeks earlier. He worked for the Smithsonian Institute. He failed. It was his last attempt. Neither of these brothers had more than a high school education. And the totality of their investment, their experience was $1,000. And that included the money to get there to Kitty Hawk where they were going to conduct their experiment. But their dream would never go away. They were frustrated more than once. They thought about throwing in the towel and calling it quits. But in the end, making bicycles was just a means of making a living so their dream would stay alive. Their dream was birthed as children when they opened their father's Christmas present as kids one year. And like most little toys stay in the box, this one actually ascended to the ceiling. It was a toy helicopter made by French inventor Alphonse Pinaud, twin propellers with a twisted rubber band. In fact, Wilbur Wright told his father, I have been afflicted with the belief that flight is possible. I've been afflicted with the belief that flight is possible. December the 17th, 1903, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, ready for the first time to see their dream either fly or crash. There was no in-between. They had made the engine. They had pioneered the propeller. It's mechanic size and shape when nothing else would keep the propeller in place. They used their fix-all bicycle cement as a solution. Few witnesses were gathered for that historic event. No newspaper even showed up to watch the bike boys try their attempt at flight. The world was in its natural busyness, unaware that anything of importance was about to take place. But there were some witnesses there was John T. McDaniel, a local. The Wrights had put up a signal flag which told the locals, come out, we're going to try to fly. It, it was, a, it was a, a call for all the people to join, but nobody hardly did. But John T. Daniels showed up. Along with Daniels showed up a guy named Willie Dow and Adam Etheridge. And two other people didn't even see the, the flag. They just happened to be on the beach that morning. What a morning to just happen to be on the beach. 
William C. Barclay was a lumber buyer who was scouring the beach for some shipwrecked timber. And then there was Johnny Moore, a 16-year-old boy. These five would be the sole witnesses of history being made that day. Daniels had never taken a photograph in his life. They put him in charge of squeezing the bulb at just the right moment when the little airplane made it to the end of the two-by-four skids. He was in charge. He was a photographer, though he'd never taken a picture before. Norville and Wilbur Wright were dressed in their usual attire. It's unthinkable in, well, in casual America today. Even with all the mechanics duties and the sea and the sand, Wilbur, Wilbur and Orville wore a business suit, a starch collar, a necktie, and a cap. Unthinkable to us today. And the wind, the wind was perfect. The flyer was supposed to be ready. They calculated on paper over and over. It was time to get off the paper and into the air. It was 10.35 a.m. And Orville is at the controls. His life is clearly on the line. He was chosen by fortune or misfortune of the uh, coin toss. At this point, they weren't sure if he was lucky or not. There could be no hedging. Orville would have to lie flat, prone, placing all of his weight upon the plane. He was life and limb committed to the moment. Wilbur was running in place alongside him, fussing over some last-minute adjustments. All the years of dreaming were over. The time had come to test their dream in the harsh, unforgiving laboratory of the sky. The question that gripped their heart that morning, will it fly? The plane, consisting of wings of cotton and wood, rushed down the skid track made of four 15-foot-long two-by-fours. Will it fly? The Wrights had counted on the flying machine, especially Orville, who was laying down. He was committed. There was no other way. Once the engine was propelling down the track, he had followed carefully the experience of other flyers, and he knew that other experimenters had crashed and actually died in the process. Have you ever placed yourself in such a vulnerable position? Position where you're counting on something in a really big way? Something or someone upon whom you have placed the entirety of all of your weight as you pondered Will it fly or will it disappoint me? There'll be a time in your life, if you're a Christian, you'll be called upon to cast your whole weight on the gospel story of Jesus. You've heard this story about the man named Jesus, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived an absolute perfect life, that he died a death on the cross that was a substitution for our sins, that he was resurrected the third day. After 40 days, he ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father on a throne. And now we're waiting for him to come again for his own. Perhaps this morning or you're live streaming or watching by way of television, you too have been curious about that story. And maybe you've heard that story so many times that it's lost its grip on you today. But you'll eventually be called upon to put all of your weight on the story. 
Like Orville Wright, you're going to have to commit yourself life and limb to the story, and you're going to wonder, when I really need it, will the gospel fly? Perhaps it'll be a painful divorce that will cause you to test the gospel and its hope. Maybe it's a layoff notice from work. Maybe it's a conflict or a sickness in your life. Perhaps as in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, it'll be the death of someone you love. Maybe it'll be your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, your grandparent, or God forbid, even a child. What will you do? Life is forever changed after the unwelcome power of death. You will be called upon to to cast your whole weight on the gospel. Will the gospel disappoint? Will it leave you abandoned and hopeless? Or the gospel deliver hope and comfort and peace and good news of eternal life? What about the promise of the resurrection, of life eternal? Will the gospel fly? Will it hold up? We're looking this morning at at Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And first of all, if the gospel fails us, we are without hope. If the gospel fails us, we are without hope. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men the most to be pitied. Perhaps you've heard someone say, if there's no eternal life, I'm still glad I followed the gospel. As if they're not quite sure about this eternal life resurrection bit. An attempt to hedge their bets and limit their losses. No, says Paul. If the gospel story is not true, then those of us who have placed our hope and our weight in this story, we've cast our weight upon it, we are the people that are to be pitied, verse 19. Paul does does not hedge his bets, no, never, when he accepts a gospel story to be true. For him, it was a radical reversal. He was the one who had persecuted the church. He'd eventually have to abandon and lose his own life for the preaching of the gospel. For Paul, the modern category of the gospel is not so bad, even if it's not really true, it never existed. It would have no place in his mind. If God had been working through Pharisaic Judaism, then Paul was following that. Paul would cast his whole weight wherever God was working. But now on the road to Damascus, having seen the resurrected Lord, Paul would now cast his whole weight upon the gospel story, upon the resurrection of Christ. Like Orville Wright, rushing down those skid tracks and the first ever airplane. Paul had committed himself, literally, life and limb to the gospel 
And you have to, too, if you're a follower of Jesus. Notice verse 17. If the gospel is not true, then those who are, li- those who are alive are living with a full burden of their sins. If the gospel is not true, then there's no forgiveness. There's no freedom. Paul says we are still in our sins. Every mistake you ever made, every sin you ever committed, if the gospel is not true, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he has not paid for your sins and you are still in your sins. Verse 17, verse 18, then those who've died with hope in the gospel have simply perished. You understand what he's saying? Make no mistake about it. Those stricken by the power of death, your husband, your wife, your parents, your child, your brother, your sister, those who've cast their weight on the gospel story, they have simply perished if Jesus is not accurate. Psychologists remembered the death of one of his colleagues on staff at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. The man passed away. He'd served on the university faculty in the hospital doing research for 25 years. He'd earned the respect of the professional, his colleagues and the patients and all had all the pinnacle of success that chosen field will give one when they make accomplishments. He had tasted everything good by all the standards of life. At the next staff meeting, Well, the the head of the staff did what he always did. He called for 60 seconds of silence for the dead physician and researcher. And the psychologist remembers, I don't don't know what the other people were thinking, but I can tell you what I was thinking. Is this what it comes down to? All of life, a five-minute eulogy and 60 seconds of silence. All that work that he did and all the service he tried to do at the end of the day, is this all that it comes down to? Is there no real meaning in life? The psychologist was struck by the collective inadequacy of all the smart people in the room to deal with their colleague's death. Where had he gone and would he ever live again? No one dared to ask the question, much less have the answer. Without the resurrection of Christ, those who have placed their hope in Christ have perished, for theirs is a misplaced hope. Verse 15, he tells us, if the resurrection of Jesus is not true, then we've made God out to be a liar. If the resurrection of Jesus is not an absolute historic truth, then we are false witnesses against God. For Paul, there's no hedging the bet, no riding the fence. He had declared God had acted in the person of Christ and his crucifixion and his glorious bodily resurrection. And if Jesus Christ is not alive, Paul says, we have misunderstood the work of God. We have missed the mark entirely. But he sort of tips his hat in verse 18. Notice what he says. Then those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have perished. He can't even call them dead. He calls them fallen asleep in Jesus, which is language of hope. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have perished. Yes, the first point is, if the gospel is not true, then then we are without hope. We are pitiful people. But the second point is, give thanks to God that indeed the gospel will not fail us because... The gospel will not fail us because, first of all, it is the plan of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
This is the gospel in a nutshell. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as if it were to one born out of time, he also appeared to me. Paul was a Jew, a good student of what we would call the Old Testament. And he was mindful that the prophets had pointed to Jesus. They had sp spoken of a Messiah who would be a suffering servant, who would die, who would actually rise again. Rather than seeing Jesus now as antithetical to the story of the Jewish nation, Paul now saw that in Jesus all that the prophets had said had now been fulfilled. That rather than going against the prophets, this rabbi, this, this Messiah was actually fulfilling all that Jesus, all that God had required of the Jews in Jesus. We too can take confidence in this Jesus story precisely because it's the working out of God with humankind. Not only are the scriptures fulfilled, but secondly, he says in verses 5 through 8, there's eyewitness testimonies. Like on the beach that day at Kitty Hawk, there was John T. Daniels and Etheridge and, well, you remember the list. He gives us the list of those who saw the resurrected Jesus. He kind of goes over his list there in verses 5 through 8. Oh, Peter saw him, he says. Then the 12 saw him. Hey, now that I think about it, there's about 500 who saw him. Some of them are dead, but most of them are alive. Go and ask them. They have seen the resurrected Jesus. Oh, James, his brother, had been reluctant to believe at all that his brother was the Messiah. Go and ask James. He saw him. All the apostles saw him. They saw him. They had seen the empty tomb. They had seen the resurrected Jesus, including me, Paul says, one born out of time. They had seen the empty tomb. They had seen the resurrected Jesus. And some had been invited to touch the scars on his wrist and on his side. They had watched him eat a meal. They had watched him ascend there from the mount. And those skeptical before, now they had seen him and no one could convince them that he was not alive. Oh, at first they tried to brush off the reports. God chose women to be the first witnesses to the resurrection. And the men began to say, even those who were supposed to believe, these are nothing but, but the tales, the gossip of women. And then they saw Jesus. And now they too fully believed. You don't believe in the resurrection, Paul says? Go ask them. They're still in your, here in your city. Go ask them. The resurrection of Christ gives us assurance, verses 20 through 26. The resurrection of Christ gives us assurance. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep for since by man, meaning Adam, came death, by man, meaning Jesus, also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all should be made alive. 
but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ is his coming. Then comes the end, and he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father. He's abolished all rule, all authority, and all power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. Christ himself is resurrected, but that's not the end of the story. This is a cosmic event. When the Christ comes alive again, he is the beginning of the resurrection. He inaugurates the age of the resurrection, but it does not end with him. He's the first fruit. But those who believe will surely follow. Like the first apple off the tree means the harvest is going to come. So the Christ's empty tomb means that ours will be empty as well. Psalm and Corinth were worried about those who had died before Jesus returns. Will they miss the kingdom of God? Some in Corinth were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And he says, well, there is no resurrection of the dead. Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sin. But thanks be to God, he was raised. And I saw him. And James saw him. And Peter saw him. And 500 brethren saw him. Go and ask them. He is alive. Just as in Adam we're all introduced to death, in Christ all who believe are introduced to life. Look really closely. You can still see their footprints in the Carolina sand. Orville is lying down with his full weight on the machine. Wilbur is shuffling beside, bickering about some last-minute adjustments to the controls. I wondered to myself, what was Orville thinking about when that hot engine was smoking in the cold sea air as he's helplessly being thrust forward on two-by-four skids? What was he thinking? I know what I'd have been thinking. I wish Wilbur had won the corn toss. Coin toss, that's what I'd have been thinking. But Orville had tested the machine and the conditions in every possible way. And I believe that Orville thought he was going to fly. He carefully placed his faith with open, intelligent eyes in this machine, this contraption they had built. 120 feet, 12 seconds, the first flight. Orville was safe. Three more flights would follow that day. Wilbur got to do the last one. 59 seconds. 800 feet, think about the length of a football field, 300 feet, he went 800 feet, nearly three football fields on the fourth flight in the history of humanity. And oh yeah, John T. Daniels squeezed the bulb at just the right time. His first ever photograph became one of the best known photographs in American history. Orville summed it up. It was the first flight in history of the world in which a machine carrying a man raised itself by its own power in the air in full flight, had sailed forward without reduction of speed, and it finally landed at a point as high as the one from which it started. The five visitors drifted away, and Orville and Wilbur Wright, now with no need to hurry, sat down and ate their lunch. They washed their dishes and calmly walked five meals five miles to the Kitty Hawk weather station. They sent a telegram back to their preacher dad in Dayton. 
Success, four flights. We'll be back for Christmas. And they were. When they arrived in Dayton a few days later, there were no throngs. There was no band. There was no parade. Only their father and Catherine, their sister, and Lauren, their older brother, and the conquerors of the air rode home in a one-horse surrey. One day, you will experience the sting of death if you haven't already, and many of you have. And that moment, you will know that you must place all of your weight on the gospel story. Like Orville Wright, you must lie prone and put everything that you are and all that you believe and your internal destiny on this story of Jesus, this rabbi of the empty tomb. And when you do, it will fly. It will fly. It will not disappoint you. And where there is darkness, there will be light. And where there is weakness, there will be strength. And where there is despondency, there will be hope. And where there is death, there will be resurrection life. It will fly. Let us pray. Oh God, maybe there's some even today who are hurting from a recent death in their family. May they hear the word of absolute hope today from the Apostle Paul who himself had seen the resurrected Jesus. It'll fly. May there's someone here this morning who needs to declare Jesus Christ as his Lord or her Lord and Savior. Say, I'm casting my whole weight on the gospel. May there are others who want to come and be a part of this church family. However you would call, O oh God, may we be willing to respond. Amen.